Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja, California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hi out there in Archaeology Podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel for episode 96. We're going to have Linda Hilkema on board. She's the editor of La Pintura for the American Rock Art Research Association. This is going to be an open architecture wild ride. Don't miss this one. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. And we're blessed and honored to have Linda Hilkema, who is uh, both the editor of La Pintura, which is the uh, newsletter for the American Rock Art Research Association, and also a board member with the California Rock Art Foundation as well. Linda, are you with us? I sure am, Alan. I'm here. Great. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I I think you've been on just once before, very, very early in the show's evolution. Um, And you talked a bit about some of your research. Am I correct? Right. I was on with Donna Gillette. Yes. Yeah. Well, Linda, let's let's open it up this way. I want to, um, you know, have some reflections to start off in terms of what prompted you to get involved in the study of rock art research, anthropology, archaeology, and the study of Native Americans? What was the the source and the inspiration of that interest? Well, I think it depends on how far back you want me to go. It actually started with my parents who were avid history buffs. So my brother and I, growing up, my parents did a lot of camping, really remote camping, like the kind of camping out in the middle of nowhere that you need a four-wheel drive pickup to get to, very remote. And they were also avid history buffs. And we visited a lot of historical sites, a lot of archaeological sites. 
a lot of museums. Uh, so I had sort of this immersion very early. And what area, what area of the country was this in? Was it in California or somewhere else? California, Nevada, Idaho, Washington, pretty much all the Western United States, Mm -hmm. Arizona, New Mexico, predominantly in Nevada. My mother loved Nevada, especially Northern Nevada. And we went to just about every ghost town you can think of in Nevada. And we looked at petroglyph sites as well and prehistoric sites. They just They just really loved history and archaeology. They were avocationalists. Isn't that rare for a woman to have such a passion for an area that is so desolate, such as Nevada? I, well, I don't know. I grew up with it, so it didn't seem (laughs) odd to me. (laughs) But my mother was very, she was very independent from a very young age. I mean, when she Uh was a teenager, she took her Model A, I mean, you know, in the 40s. Really? Crossed Yosemite before the roads were paved. She went with a couple of girlfriends and she tooled around all over the place. So, and then they, my parents took their honeymoon. They drove up the Alcan Highway, went up into Alaska and went salmon fishing. And so they really loved that kind of stuff. Sounds like they were very outdoorsy and, and loved adventure and loved history. What did they do for a living? Were they, were they academics or were they just interested in history as an avocation? So my father, yeah, my, my father was an aerospace engineer. He um, worked for a number of engineering firms over the decades. Also, he and his, one of his college buddies started a military vehicle testing company in Northern Nevada. That company is still in business today. Wow. And my mom actually was uh, an antique dealer. Up until her 80s, she was always self-employed. She was very independent. So they were they were um, very independent in their own different ways. Sounds like it. When did you see your first rock art site? Do you remember? And what impressed you about them? And what, what caused you to, to care about these particular interesting and esoteric features on the landscape? You know, I couldn't tell you how old I was when I saw my first rock art site. I, I just remember being... Just very young and hiking, you know, we would camp out in, you know, like the Black Rock Desert or wherever we were. And, you know, we would just go on these day long hikes and we would just look at whatever was out there, whether it was the burrows or the ghost towns or, you know, the rock art. And it just was always very, you know, interesting to me. And so when I got into college, I started out as a psychology major and and then added anthropology as a second major. So I, I actually double majored as an undergraduate. Did my first field school, I think in 1986. It was in Santa Cruz. I did my undergrad at San Jose State and got both my uh, bachelor's degrees there. And so you had two, two degrees, huh? Two bachelor's degrees, psychology and anthropology. When I was deciding to go to grad school, I went to, to Cal State Hayward for my they think they call it East Bay now, but uh-huh. Cal State Hayward for my uh, master's degree, I was looking for a job in the college one ads. And I thought, oh, there's not going to be any archaeology positions. And lo and behold, there was one. There was a seasonal position with the Forest Service down in Sierra National Forest. And so I applied for it and, and got it. And so I worked for the summer, I think it was 1988, 
in Sierra National Forest, the North Fork District. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really any rock art up there per se, but we did record one very, very large ethnographic site that was uh, several acres in size, and it was an ethnographic trading village for the Mono and the Yokuts. It was a summer gathering site. And it took us a long time to document the site because there were all of these different areas where the families were camping. Was it an historic village site or was it? uh... It did have an historic component and it was it was known to some of the local elders as a site that their ancestors would go to. So I think the site had some antiquity, but it also was recent. Yeah. Did you connect with any of the elders while you were doing your research there? We did. We had several Native peoples that we worked with. Sure, but that was early. Yeah. That was early. And after that, I I did a number of jobs with CRM firms, but then I got hired as the uh, district archaeologist for the, the Bureau of Land Management down in Hollister. And we also had a number of Native American people that we worked worked with down there. And that was where I kind of more really got into the rock art was during that period of time. Now, Hollister, is, is that in the Central Valley or is that in the Bay Area? So Hollister is very, very, very Southern Bay Area. It's uh, in okay. San Benito County. Mm-hmm. And what sort, of, what sort of rock art was in the Hollister area? Mostly cupules and bedrock mortars. They were almost okay. always in association, but there were... A few other sites that had PCNs or the pecked curvilinear nucleated rock art types that Donna Gillette did for her thesis and dissertation. Mm-hmm. There were there was a, a little bit of pictograph rock art, not very much, uh-huh. and it was in very poor. What little there was uh, was in very poor condition mm-hmm. from weathering, etc. But when I was with the BLM. It was kind of difficult for me to do assessments because we didn't really have a good management plan Mm -hmm. for the district. And so I had just started grad school at that time, and I proposed doing a site settlement study for my master's thesis, but also would be used as a basis for the cultural resources management plan for the BLM. Yeah. And so I was able to kind of marry the two. Yeah. So it sounds like from the get-go, you had a good position with a management agency mm-hmm. and you were connect you were connecting with with some of that rather unusual and uh, distinctive yet enigmatic and mysterious rock art, correct? Correct. Right, right. I did a settlement study. I, I basically just took all of the sites that were recorded and Noted their geographic position, whether they were on a mm-hmm. canyon mouth or on a ridge top or whatever, and what kind of sites uh-huh. they were, and just did this big matrix. And uh, happened to include, I don't remember offhand how many sites had rock art, but maybe a quarter of the sites had some component of rock art, even if it was just cupules. Sure. So I guess fast forward to your recent association with the California Rock Art Foundation, but also with the American Rock Art Research Association. Tell me how, how you got connected with Arrera and what Arrera is and what your role with them has been. Arrera is the uh, American Rock Art Research Association. And I, I believe we have members from s- countries around the world. I don't know how many, but I would say maybe 
40 countries around the world. I could be wrong. Wow. I'm good friends with Donna Gillette, and she, of course, is on the craft board. But I'd, I've known Donna for probably 30 plus years. And she kind of encouraged me to go to Arara. And so I went to, a, you know, some Arara conferences and, and liked it. I'm, I, I don't describe myself as a rock art researcher, but I like it and I advocate for its protection and I enjoy it. And I was at an Arara conference, I think in 2018, and the current editor at the time was mentioning that she really needed to step down as editor. And I sort of foolishly said, oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> and she said, good, you're it. And so. Oh, my word. So I've so been the editor st- now for. In- yeah, I stepped in it. So I've been yeah. the editor now for about three years. And we, we put out four newsletters a year on various. So how long has Arrera been around? And what did they do? And. What is the the newsletter like? How long has the newsletter been around and how many issues? It's, you know, a million questions, please. Oh boy. So I'll have to get back to you on how long Aurora has been around. I could cheat and go to their website right now. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, newsletter has been around for many, many years. It used to be a printed publication, a black and white okay. printed publication. Uh-huh. And right yeah. after I came on board, we switched over to a digital format. Okay. It's still four times a year, but it's a digital format. And we accept articles on basically wherever people are doing rock art research. It doesn't just Mm -hmm. have to be the Americas. It can be Australia or, you know, Africa or wherever. So anywhere in the world. It's predominantly American, but not exclusively. Okay. And do they have conferences outside of uh, meetings outside of America or no? I don't know if they have conferences outside of America. I've... I've maybe been to five or six of them and they're in various, you know, locations you know, uh-huh. around the country. Yeah. The ones I've been to have always been on the sort of the Western side of the United States. I'm presuming sure. because they have more rock art. The yeah. upcoming one is going to be in Tucson. Okay. And they always have great field trips. Yes. That's what people go for is of course the field trips as well. So you've been an editor for, the Herrera newsletter. What's that like? And how many members are there in Herrera? I think we have about 500 members. Oh my word, I had no idea. Wow. The uh, the Herrera newsletter is is really fun to do. It's always challenging to get content. So sure. I end up begging a lot mm-hmm, <laughs> for content. Mm-hmm. Sure. I find that if I throw out a topic at, to people... And I usually get more responses that way, like women uh-huh. in archaeology or something. People will can relate to a theme. Sure. And so I, I get articles that way. We have uh, Native Americans, of course, on our in our group, and they submit articles as well as you know non-native scholars. Uh huh. And what's been some of the more interesting articles or contributions or research? Oh, you're going to put me on the spot for that. Yeah, no, just what, what 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 do you what do you feature? Yeah. Well, this last edition yeah, focused mainly on describing various rock art places in the southern Arizona region because that's where our upcoming conference is going to be. 
And so we had, we just have a number of fabulous sites that are around. We have Koroke, I'm probably saying it wrong, Kokoraki Ranch. Uh Uh-huh. Well, let's, let's hold that idea for the, for the next segment. And I, I want to hear all okay. about the uh, the rock art in, in Arizona and what they're what you featured in the newsletter. See you in the flip flop gang. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by thirty percent in twenty twenty three. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S. based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back, gang. We're here at the uh, Rock Art Podcast, episode 96. We're pressing towards the millennial, the centennial mark. We have Linda Hilkema as our guest scholar this uh, episode. This is segment two. And I think we're going to start talking about some of the things that were featured in the American Rock Art Research Association, La Pintura newsletter. Linda, you were just about to tell us about some of the extraordinary sites that exist, I think, in Arizona, correct? Mm-hmm. Southern Arizona. Yeah. One of our trips is going to be to Kokoraque Butte in the uh, Ironwood Forest National Monument. And this particular site has uh, one of the largest known selections of bell rocks in Southern Arizona. And I, I believe those are rocks that have certain acoustic properties. You know what the, you know what they're called, Linda? They're called lithophones. And lithophones are uh, acoustic lithophones. archaeology. Yeah, acoustic archaeology. They're, they're rock gongs. They had them in uh, Yokut's country in the Southern San, San Joaquin Valley as well. I don't know if they're common or uncommon, but I guess when you hit a lithophone, a gong rock, with uh, another rock, it uh, produces a ringing sound. And so uh, that's your uh, archaeoacoustic lecture for uh, right now. And I believe that they were uh, ritually or ceremonially important to uh, certain cultures, or they were perhaps used in certain uh, ceremonies or other uh, ritually significant events. I would imagine this will be my first time seeing those. And the area where these uh, rocks are, there's uh, apparently in the immediate area, like over 2,000 petroglyph elements uh, on boulders oh around them. So it was a very important you know, area at one time. Well, one of the things that, uh, of course, indigenous people believed, and this is sort of the Native American perspective on this, is that all things both things that we would consider inanimate as well as animate have what we call agency. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by agency is they believe they're alive and they have a force mm-hmm. and they have a sentience and a knowledge and they can make choices and they can act as humankind. So when a lithophone was found, a rock gong, obviously it was speaking as though it was emanating from the rock. And so you know, when they talk about the rocks begin to speak or talking mm-hmm. stones, etc., that's what this is. It has, it has a force, it has a knowledge, it has a sound. And I think some of the things I've, that I was taught, I, I did w- only one article on archaeoacoustics, and it was um, with one of the originators of that, that whole discipline of 
archaeoacoustics. It's very fascinating to me, and I've, I've never really experienced them before, so I'm, I'm looking really forward to not only just seeing them and hearing them, but, you know, looking at how they're perched on the landscape and how they relate to everything else that's going on around them. One of the hypotheses that those that are involved with archaeoacoustics believe is that certain rocks or certain landforms were selected because they had acoustic properties. So in other words, if there was an area that was echophonic or was a natural amphitheater that would mm-hmm. echo one's voice, that the rock art would be emblazoned or would be situated such to take advantage of that phenomenon. Do you think they were for signaling or do you, or do you think no, they were? No, I, I, I don't think they were used in any sort of conventional way or for communication. I think it was perceived that there was life in the rocks and as they were ringing that they were communicating something, some nature, some some sort of message from them. And I'm not sure what that message was, but I would say that it would it was an, involved something that was powerful. Mm-hmm. Also the the native people tended and tell me if the, if you think this is intuitively correct. When I've known Native people and spoken to them, it appears to me that speaking is less important than listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so sound, sound becomes critically important. Listening to the sounds of the world, nature, what someone else perhaps is saying is far more important than what you're going to say or how you're going to communicate. And they tend to relate best to those people who in turn are listening to sounds rather than wanting to speak or communicate at great length. So in other words, I wouldn't be someone who who perhaps would find many kindred spirits in Native Americans because I love to talk so much. <laughs> but but if I if I listen and if I listen to them or listen to the sounds of an environment or what the environment is telling me, then that is much more akin to the way in which Native people grok the universe. They tend to be much more ethereal and much more associated with the land, the landscape, the natural world, whatever is around them. Do you agree or no? Oh, I totally agree. And I and I can relate to that because when I go hiking or when I'm camping, I never wear headphones. I always want to hear and I sometimes really just enjoy sitting and listening to, you know, whatever the birds are doing or whatever the wind is doing. And it dri- it drives me crazy when I see people hiking, you know, in the foothills up here and they've got they're either blabbing away really loud or they've got headphones on and they're not listening. And one of my favorite things to do is when I'm, you know, out somewhere is to just sit and listen. So the, you know, the world will really speak to you if you listen. And I took two native Americans into little petroglyph Canyon Mm -hmm. and they began, uh, you know, walking the Canyon with everyone. And then all of a sudden they both sat down (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I go, and I go, what's going on? He said, said, we want to sit here. We don't want to walk any further. And I go, why is that? 
says because we want to listen. <laughs> we want to uh-huh. hear the mm-hmm. hear the images and hear what they have to say and process this place. And we can't process the place if we're constantly walking and talking. And so I said, okay, well. I, I can relate to that. I, I, I can understand that. And to sit and also absorb the scents or the smells of a place yes. as well. Like if you're somewhere out after a rain and you have the smell of the earth and the sage, and if you just sit there and listen and smell, you have all these different um, sensory experiences. And it's, it's, it's very illuminating. I think for the most part, when I've connected with Native people, they're far more kinesthetic than many of us are. I'm very visual, or uh, I don't think it may be sometimes even auditory, but, but visual is the main element that I connect with. But I believe that Native people and those that, are, that relate to Native people most effectively are heavily kinesthetic. Do you mm-hmm. agree? I think so. I know. They, I, I, they, I, they feel. I they feel the world. They they want to sense. They want to move slower. They want to touch and sense and feel and connect and listen. Exactly. No, I I, I understand that. I I agree with that completely because sometimes it is just best to just sit and listen. And it's amazing how much you see and hear and can learn when you're just sitting and watching over a landscape for a and and listening period of time um, I, right i went with e-viewing i was out in utah she and i are both uh-huh. avid rock art passionate researchers she has published a bit and uh, taken a hundred trips into the great mural rock art in baja on uh, top of a mule and she and i both went to this petroglyph site and uh, she always sits down <laughs> mm-hmm. and begins to look at it. And me, I'm all over it, you know, wandering here and there and anywhere. Well, when I was in uh, Sago Canyon, just looking at those incredible figures, I actually sat down too. And I was just looking at them. But you can't take your eyes off of them. But at the same time, you, you start to hear the birds and you just, it's just amazing. If there's a presence. They have a they have a presence, and you can feel it. Yeah. So the the first sort of anecdotal story is when I sat down and, and waited and sat with her and began to look. I began to process the images in a way I hadn't processed them before, and I began to see things that I hadn't seen before, and began to see the connections and began noting things that I hadn't noted before. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, Eleni Moore, who's a rather famous rock art artist mm-hmm. who replicates rock art sites, is exactly the same way. She sat down and viewed the um, panels and paintings in that uh, enormous cave, the largest cave of rock art in the Great Mural area, and spent weeks, months, years just going over and over and over, looking at the same images again and noticing every jot and tittle regarding the things that she gets to see. And I know that I've done the same thing with the photographs that I have of Koso Rock Art. Every time I've gone back Mm -hmm. and viewed them again and looked at them closer, don't you know, I see new things. I see with new eyes. I, I I begin to see 
other relationships and things that I hadn't seen before. And it's different every time. And you're always seeing something, something new, which is why, you know, a place like Little Pet Canyon or the Great Mural, it's always fascinating to go back there because you see something different every time or you process it differently. That's what could be another thing is maybe you process it differently than the last time you right. were there. Right. Thinking of uh, pictographs, a great mural, I was listened to um, a lunchtime lecture from uh, Shumla. And forgive me, I don't know the acronym off the top of my head, but I can get sure. it for you. But it was on preparing the pigments for the pictographs. Mm-hmm. And, and it's an extremely involved and lengthy process to gather the pigments themselves and to process the binder, whether it's cactus juice or whether it's whatever it is they're using for a binder, but just the whole process of making enough pigment, you know, going to get it, processing it, making it, storing it, that process alone. And then you look at some of the large figures and if you've ever painted a picture, you know how much paint it takes to paint something. So it's not just a matter of, you know, going out and painting something. There's a tremendous amount of work that has to be done, much like making a basket. You don't just pick up plants and start making the basket. You have to collect them at the right time and you have to, you know, process them and dry them and, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole very involved process. And I had never thought of pictographs in that way before that it may take a year or more to, you know, process enough pigments to do an image that you are going to do. So the preparation Mm -hmm. is, is an element that one should consider when one sees one of these elaborate, multicolored, just jaw dropping paintings that we and see. I would imagine that the ritual of preparing the pigment is every bit as important. Well, I'm projecting. I would get, yeah, I would guess so. I would imagine I, that it's ab- just ab- as absolutely. important, as important well, as the image itself. Well, when we think of pigment, I do know uh, from ethnographic information and the reading that I've done, when they talked to Wavoka, who, of course, was the um, range shaman who was responsible mm-hmm. for the ghost dance in mm-hmm. uh, 1890, Pigment, red pigment, was what he would send to people and ask them for donations. And he would get donations from Indian tribes all over the country and around the world because they felt that that pigment, that red pigment that he would send them was alive and so powerful and so important to the nature of who they were and what they were doing to have life. It was alive and it was a critical element to uh, the nature of the trade and the nature of sort of gathering something that really was a piece of the land. And I wonder if it had to do with the fact that it's the same color as, as blood. As Yes. Yeah, because it means blood. Oh, sorry, I... It means blood. It means yes. earth. It means life. Mm-hmm. So the color red to the Numic, to the Great Basin Paiute Shoshone, meant the land. Red was the land. Red mm-hmm. was life. Red was blood. Red was red was this this particular most powerful color, and it also meant joy and happiness. Mm-hmm. So all of that sort of uh, you know colorful language and associated symbolism was all wrapped up in that particular element. 
Well, we're out of time on the second segment. <laughs> See y'all in the flip-flop, gang. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, gang. Here we are on segment three on episode 96. Your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. We're uh, going to put the uh, the icing on the cake and the candles in it and, and then roll roll it away. Here we go. Linda, you're here. I am here. Well, let's pick up where we left off. We were talking about some of the more ethereal and interesting sort of riffs that we can have with rock art. Mm -hmm. One of the stories that I have, it's an anecdotal story again, is I I went to Utah. I was the keynote speaker at the Utah Rock Art Research Association, Mm -hmm. and and they had a field trip. So I went out to one of those enormous canyons. I don't know if it was Seagull Canyon or not. It's the one with the... um, with that praying uh, animal human figure and then the, the sort of the king kingly people that were up on the wall. Oh yes. Yes. And so uh, I, we drove in there, I wasn't driving and then uh, we parked the vehicle and I got out of the vehicle and I immediately had vertigo. I could not even stand up. Mm. I was like blown away by the landscape. It was so overpowering and so disconcerting to me to be standing there with this rock shelf that's sort of leaning over me, towering above me, and this other thing kind of coming at me. It it just confused the hell out of me in terms of where I was and how to stand properly. And I uh, almost fell down. I, I, I'm absolutely serious. I'm not exaggerating. No, I, I believe that. You know, it's interesting you go, um, I believe it's Sago Canyon, but I, I might be wrong. I might have to correct myself later. You go into this canyon, and like you said, there's this huge vertical wall and these huge figures, and they're stunning, but you also look at how they're placed on the landscape. You know, they are meant to be seen. I mean, they are just right at the, at the head of this canyon, and you can't miss them. Whereas, you know, there's other rock art that is probably not meant to be seen. I've seen uh, rock art that's underneath, that's like there are slabs and there's rock art like underneath or they're in hidden, you know, hard to get to places. And so just the fact that these figures were like guarding the canyon was astonishing. Yeah. And I, I think when I've looked at the Coso rock art that I've looked at for 50 years, I think that's a similar phenomenon. What I see in in this canyon that gave me vertigo, and I've seen it also in Little Petroglyph Canyon, is there's 
there's sometimes a relationship between the images that appear that are these mm-hmm. decorated animal human guardian like prophetic ancestor shamanistic ancestor deity like figures that are usually very large and very impressive and then if you look over uh, and under at a lower elevation there's usually a, sometimes a smaller figure <laughs> and it is adoring or paying homage or supplicating itself to oh. those figures and they will be uh, having their hands open and and those hands are directed in in an elevated fashion out out in front of themselves uh, out there uh, you know, in that supplication mode. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's so yeah. fascinating. It's so fascinating. But I mean, that 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 sort of again shows the gestural nature, sometimes of rock art imagery, mm-hmm. that can communicate to viewers across hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Isn't that? Wild. Right. There are some images that are just sort of uh, that you find, yeah, that you find cross culture. You know, it, the sun or hands or, or whatever. There's just certain images that you can relate to, and it doesn't matter if they're 500 or 5,000 years old. Our friend, who's a board member, Aaron Barnia, has taken mm-hmm. uh, cinematography photographs all over the world of one kind of image. <laughs> And that's the uh, long-horned or, or you know, uh, horned or, or uh, you know, these, these, these enormous beings, animals that have these enormous horns or antlers, right? Yeah. And they're uh-huh. normally centrally placed in certain um, cultures. So he studied the comparisons of what those horned figures are doing and how they relate cosmologically, religiously, to the cultures that are depicting them. Does that have anything maybe to do with the fact that a lot of the large horned creatures in real life are maybe primary food sources, and so they're very important to the people that are depicting them? And that that's, trans- part, that's, that's certainly part of it, yes. That's part of the story. But what they found is when they study the uh, animal remains of these people, you know, the actual economic animal bones, mm-hmm. they're, they're not usually the principal animals that they're eating. They're good to eat, but they're, they're more good to think because you can't get many of them. They're normally fairly hard to hunt. And if you can get a couple of them, it's sort of a feast, right? Right. Because they're big animals. Yeah. But, but one of the, one of the most amazing things that, that he, he told me and I, I was, somewhat shocked when he told me this because I, I wasn't sure about my assessment. I said, you know, I've looked at these animals. They're on the rocks here. They're, they're figures. They're artiodactyls. They're, mm-hmm. you know, large game animals. Mm-hmm. And they represent them on the rocks. And they like to show their big horns, right? Because they're called big horns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Sheep. So... And they show the bodies, they're big, and the legs are, you know, rather small or dainty or thin. But one anatomical detail that they almost always have 
that you never see on a real life animal is what? Their the tail. Oh, their tail. No, their tail. Uh-huh. Their tail. They're always showing tails, and you never see tails on bighorn sheep. They they tuck them neatly within their backside, and they're they're relatively tiny. Why do they show these tails all the time, right? And so they also show the tails not tucked neatly, but they're parallel to the ground, or they're sometimes upturned towards the sky. And so uh, a lot of people have written about this, and uh, I was always curious to know why the heck they would do that. Well, when I talked to Aaron Barnia, he says, oh, yeah, all over the world, wherever I go and look at them, they have the same thing going on. <laughs> they always show their tails. Their tails are, are um, up or parallel to the ground or towards the sky. I wonder if some of these large animals, I think they flick their tails when they're trying to communicate either danger or they're trying to communicate to other members of their group. And I, I wonder if there's some sort of parallel there, possibly. So what I found was when I began to ask the um, wildlife biologist, right, is they said mm-hmm. the only time that their tails are up or moving is in estrus. And they do a thing called flagging. So the females wag their tails to tell the males that they're open for reproduction. I was going to say it probably has something to do with reproduction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a sign of, of vitality, of, of increase, of, of sort of that, um, that element of reproductive fertility. And when he's asked other archaeologists about that same question in other parts of the world, they all explain it exactly the same way I just did which I was shocked. I had no well, there's idea. There's got to be some truth was, to it if it's. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's one of those I universal symbols. Yeah. It's a universal symbol and it's something that's being rendered on the rocks in a way that only someone who has listened and seen and sensed the world mm-hmm. and got, got a real intimate connection with animal habits and habitat to know and behavior. Mm-hmm. That behavior. Yeah. Yeah. So this comes comes back again, full circle, to really understanding the world, the natural world, doesn't it? It does. And, you know, it, it, and would it have to do with seasonality or, you know, uh, is it, uh, uh, I don't know when, an, when the animals. It, uh, it is a seasonal thing. If it has to do with animal reproduction and the health of the ecosystem or whether it They've studied the same the same phenomenon on those big game animals that mm-hmm. are depicted at uh, you know the scow and the other places you know the 20 30 mm-hmm. 40 right. 50,000 years ago they have found that their seasonality indicators based on how they're depicted when they're depicted and the actual frequencies of those little dots that appear on the walls. They're almost like a counting or numerical system that relates back to the, the months or the frequency of when those animals reproduce and when they're available for hunting. Well, you could almost Amazing. think of it as maybe even a, a language. I mean, we always think of our language as symbols, but maybe these rock art elements, by the way they're depicted, they're, you know, they have specific 
you know, like we just said, seasonality or other elements that they're depicting, it's almost like they're telling you or that you could almost- It's almost almost a proto-language, correct? Think of it as maybe a language. Yeah, I think it's a Mm -hmm, mm proto-language. Sandy Rogers, and I think in Robert Yoey, interviewed an Owens Valley Paiute about rock art in the Owens Valley in Eastern California. And what he said was that these are storyboards, that we, mm-hmm. we write our stories on the rocks. And I haven't talked that much about it, but there's a, there's a panel in um, Little Petroglyph Canyon that I discovered that is a creation narrative. It's a creation story. And it's one that's a archaic Uto-Aztecan creation story. And it's, it's as plain as day. I mean, it's not superimposed. It's a, it's a very clear and precise description of this uh, creation story. And it's there on the rocks. Uh, only mm-hmm. if one was schooled in that particular arena would one understand that. And fortunately, it's, it was something that I had run across you know, from Shumala, actually, and Carolyn Boyd talks about the image has to do with the, the fiveness or, or the archaic Uto-Aztecans and how they uh, examined the world early on when there was no life in the world and following in the darkness, the uh, lunar goddess, and then creating the sun, then uh, lifting up the heavens so that the sun would have enough of a sort of a landscape to move about the sphere and not, not burn up the place or freeze. And it's interesting that that panel, you said that didn't have any superposition on it or it wasn't. No, nothing. uh, It's so clear. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it was impressive and just telling a story in such a way that the native people could share that with others. And it was important enough or unique enough or for whatever reason that it didn't get superimposed on, you know, so many panels have two, three, or, you know, different layers of images on top of images. Well, we're closing in on the third segment. Would you like to uh, give any messages out to our, uh, our listeners? (laughs) If you have the opportunity to go visit any rock art sites anywhere, do so. And, it doesn't really matter if you want to study or, or make it, you know, a focus of your study. Just know that they're there and that they're, they're sacred spaces and they're important and they need to be preserved and protected. And they're just, they're just iconic pieces of the landscape that are very enduring. And they're special and they need to be preserved and protected. They're uh, treasures, as I call them. They're uh, immortals on the rocks. Thank you, Linda. See you on the next one. Catch you on the flip-flop. Thank you, Alan. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening, and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Come.